few years back, scientists at UC Berkeley ran an experiment where they placed field rats in a tub of water and timed how long they could swim until they became so exhausted that they drowned. I mean, sweet guys, right? On average, these rats could swim for about seven hours before they finally gave up. After making their observations, the scientists tried the experiment again, but with one modification. Once the rats were too exhausted to swim, the scientists would remove the rats from the tub of water for a few seconds and then immediately place them back in the water. What they found was extraordinary. The rats in the second experiment could swim for nearly 20 hours before finally giving up to exhaustion. What researchers concluded was the rats in the second group were able to swim for almost three times longer than the first group because their situation didn't seem quite so hopeless. They had experienced rescue once, and they had the hope that they would be rescued again. You've probably had similar situations of hopelessness. Maybe you lost your job during the pandemic, or, or maybe you just expected things would be back to normal by now. Maybe you hoped to celebrate a holiday or special occasion with your family, but that special day came and went. Perhaps you've tried to stay optimistic about a diagnosis. But like that first group of rats, you're past the point of exhaustion and you can almost feel yourself slipping underneath the murky waters of hopelessness. I'd imagine that's how Jesus' first followers felt on that first Easter morning. They'd witnessed their friend and mentor kidnapped, beaten, and murdered before their very eyes. Then to make matters worse, they wake up to hear that his body is missing. In Luke chapter 24, verse 12, Luke says, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Over the last 13 months, almost all of us have found ourselves wondering exactly the same thing to ourselves. What has happened? How could this be? Things aren't supposed to be like this, right? Luke goes on to record a very interesting exchange saying this in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now we don't know a lot about these travelers, We know one is named Cleopas, a name which means of a renowned father. And scholars speculate that the other is his wife, a lady named Mary. It's safe to say that they were probably ordinary people just like you and me. Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside of them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. Now let's pause there for for a second. The text doesn't tell us what kept them from recognizing Jesus. We just know that they were sad and they were discouraged. They were beaten down and their faces showed it. Had they recognized the presence of Jesus among them, things would be different. And that's true for us too. The circumstances of life can leave us beaten down, but Jesus has not abandoned us. He walks alongside us and enters into the messiness of life with us. The question is, will we recognize his presence in the midst of our pain or continue to hang our heads 
as we go on our way. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas asked them, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. Now, one of my favorite authors is a guy named John Grisham, and most of his books are about the law. And one of uh, those books, a character says something to the effect of, good lawyers never ask a witness a question that they don't already know the answer to. Now, do you think Jesus really doesn't know what's been going on in Jerusalem? You think he's suffering from some temporary short-term memory loss or, or amnesia? Jesus question reminds me a little bit of what God asked Adam and Eve after they sinned back in the garden. He said, where are you? Now, of course, God knew where they were, but did they know where they were? You see, sin had driven them to hide from their loving father and creator. And I kind of think that's what Jesus is hinting at too. What things? You know, he, he wants to reveal to them that they're still seeing things from a human perspective rather than a heavenly one. They continue, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us, that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Now there it is, hopelessness bubbling to the surface. We had hoped that he was the one. He was a, a prophet and his words had power. We thought that he would redeem Israel. And after a report from some faithful women, we even thought that we might catch a glimpse of him at the tomb. But those who went didn't see Jesus. The Greek word used in verse 22 for amazed literally means to be beside oneself. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a more somber and sobering situation than we thought we were riding to victory only to have our leader struck down before the battle began. But this is not that. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. This is an amazing picture of Jesus' love. Here, he begins to refocus these beaten down believers and he starts with the Bible. He calls them foolish, and, and though that might not sound too loving, and maybe even sounds a little harsh to you, sometimes straight talk is exactly what is needed. I ran cross-country in high school, and on the nights before we would race, uh, we would go over to a teammate's house, and we would eat all the carbs that we could, and, and it was awesome. We loved it. What often happened is these pre-race meals would turn into late-night parties, so uh, there was one race where we were running um, in Louisville and everyone expected to PR or, or run your fastest race. Well, I didn't. In fact, I had a terrible race that day. And on the bus ride back across the river, I sat up towards the front of the bus and my coach, Coach Felix, he could tell that I was pretty bummed out. And he, he looked up uh, at, at the mirror and, and back at me and he said, you, you know why you sucked it up today? Because you blew it last night. 
look, Frankie baby, and he would always call me Frankie baby. Frankie baby, you are not as talented as some of the guys on this team. You can't rely on your God-given abilities like they can. You have to work harder than those guys because you're not built like a runner. You gotta work harder if, if you wanna live up to your potential. Now that might sound gruff and that might not sound nice, but it was exactly what I needed to hear if I was gonna be the best runner I could be. How many times had these two heard Jesus preach? How many lessons had they listened to? How many miracles had they witnessed? And what's more, what excuse did they have for not knowing God's word? Jesus is so good to us. We are without excuse, just as those travelers on the road to Emmaus were. But rather than blowing them off because of their failures, he walked alongside them and explained the scriptures to them. Jesus offers hope to the hopeless by making sense of a senseless world. Are you concerned about the state of the world? Does what you see discourage and frustrate you? If so, you are in good company. But have you thoroughly examined the scriptures to see what Jesus has to say about what's going on around us? I'm not talking about a chapter or two every now and then. Do you take your fears and frustrations to God's word for his perspective as much or as often as you do social media? These two beaten down travelers missed the obvious because they didn't know God's word. We would be wise to learn from their mistakes and soak our concerns in the words of Jesus. Verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Now this is a little detail that I love because it's so applicable. You see that Jesus wasn't going to force the issue with these two. He isn't going to become arrogant or pushy. If these two wanted more of Jesus, they were going to have to ask him to come with them. We get a little bit of Jesus on Sunday and perhaps a a Bible study throughout the week, but we don't always experience a life change that we ultimately desire. Why? I think it's simple. We have to be willing to invite Jesus into every part of our lives and not just isolated hours throughout the week. He won't force himself on us, but he will accept our invitation. Jesus himself says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This is exactly what we see happening on the road to Emmaus. They ask Jesus to stay a bit longer. And from there, everything begins to change. Verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? See, God's word is fantastic and mysterious. Can I show you something that maybe you hadn't noticed before? See, first we need to go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. What happened there? A husband and wife shared a meal together, right? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. Here in Luke chapter 24, we have a second meal, possibly between another married couple and their eyes are also opened. However, this second meal doesn't reveal the gravity of their sin, but instead the greatness of of God's son. 
This aha moment should not surprise us at all because it's Jesus who took the bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. Eat this and remember me. Why do we take communion every week? Because we want our eyes to be opened. We we want to remember what Jesus has done for us but we can become forgetful or like the folks on the road to Emmaus, distracted by the circumstances of our lives. But the Lord's Supper brings everything back into its proper perspective. Verse 33, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Now we got to pause here because we can't miss the magnitude of this. These two followers asked Jesus to stay because it was getting dark. And so he did. Evenings could be very dangerous in the first century. There were no streetlights, no 911, and folks tended to travel primarily by day because of this. On top of that, Emmaus is seven miles from Jerusalem. These two were probably tired and and ready to be in for the night. Yet, when their eyes were opened to Jesus, they returned to Jerusalem, and the scriptures say, at once. This would be the equivalent of you hopping up from Lincoln Hills and running all the way to New Salisbury, on first century roads at night, basically after you've kind of turned in for the evening. Oh, and don't forget Jerusalem was situated on a mountainside. So it was probably uphill the entire way. When was the last time we were that moved by Jesus' presence? If it's been a while, remember it's not because Jesus isn't with us. It's far more likely that our heads are just down and our eyes are closed too tightly. Back to verse 33, it says this, There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now think about the disciples and their lack of belief in light of all the many convincing and persuasive proofs that they've experienced. First, they had the the testimony of the women who'd gone to the tomb, right? Then we have the testimony of the Emmaus Road travelers. They see Jesus with their own eyes and they hear him with their ears. Now, they're actually watching him digest food. And most importantly, they have God's word and all the things that were written in the Old Testament. Now, my point is not to beat up the disciples. My point is to to illustrate, like, we don't normally need more proof to grow our faith. What we really need is less of ourselves. Jesus explains this perfectly in the account of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. They're both... The rich man and Lazarus die. The rich man goes to hell, but from a distance he can see paradise. And so he cries out to Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his family to repent so they don't end up just like him. The rich man thought that Lazarus' resurrection would be all the evidence they would need. 
But Abraham replied, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is what we're seeing from the disciples. The problem isn't that there isn't enough proof in the equation. The problem is there's too much of the disciples' unbelief in the equation. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Paul's point is, our wisdom doesn't compare with God's. So lean into him, trust him, have faith. He said to them, verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. After Jesus puts things into perspective for his followers, light bulbs begin to come on. They had not been defeated. Jesus had not lost. He'd actually won. He'd conquered sin and death. And they were going to tell the world about it. But it gets even better. They weren't going to have to do all this on their own. Jesus made them a promise. They were going to have the Holy Spirit to clothe them with power from on high. All they had to do was wait and watch. The best was yet to come. Jesus' followers have something great to look forward to. Verse 50, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. This section of scripture certainly ends with a different vibe than it had when it began. What began as hopeless became hope-filled. Jesus makes sense out of what can sometimes appear to be senseless. Because we belong to him, we can expect great things. Jesus' followers left that mountain with great joy because they finally understood his words and they expected to be filled with his spirit. What we'll see throughout this series is God's word and God's spirit working in God's people can change the world. But before we talk about the world, let's talk about you. Do you feel like one of those rats that's just treading water, but your strength is running out? Do you feel like things are hopeless and there's not much hope for things to get better? Let's be honest, you've called the shots in your life for a long time. Are you worn out? Are you ready to try something else? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And then he offers us this promise, and I will give you rest. Jesus also says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. If you're tired and beaten down and you need a break, if this world has burned you and left your throat sore and scratchy and you just want something refreshing, Jesus has what you need. He promises you rest And he promises to fill us with life. 
If you've never handed control of your life over to him, you can today. You can repent of your sins and be immersed into Christ and start fresh. No longer out of your own strength, but out of the strength that he provides his followers. If you've never accepted Jesus as your savior and chosen to follow him, that invitation is yours today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Jesus and his resurrection. Thank you for bringing hope to hopeless situations. Father, thank you for making sense out of the senselessness that we sometimes see. Father, we ask for your help in living in a way that honors you. Remind us that we're not in this alone, that you've promised your spirit to us as we seek to follow you. If there are folks who are watching this message today, Father, who are far from you, I pray that you will give them the courage to respond to you and take a step toward you, whatever that step might be. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name.